Who remembers what my equation for filtered load is? What's my filtered load? GFR times PX. And if I wanted to find out how a solute moves, if it's reabsorbed or it's secreted, how would I do that? How would I figure out if a solute is reabsorbed or secreted? I'd have to find my net transport rate, and how would I do that? Filtered load minus my excretion rate. Good. All right. So this particular lecture is pretty straightforward. We're talking about how the kidney handles various solutes, right? Major one being, oh, here are all your learning objection, objectives. Objections. <laughs> I object, yes. Your learning objectives for your sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, all the fun stuff. Okay. So of course, we've got an ionic composition, ECF versus ICF. As we talked way back in January, we discussed the fact that the compositions are not the same. We're in a steady state, but not in equilibrium. Right? So our bodies need to have this mismatch in order to function optimally. And so, as we know, we should know, our normative values, ECW, it's roughly about 140 for sodium, 4 for potassium, um, we have 105 roughly of chloride, 24 for bicarb, and then our pH is 7.4 with an osmolarity of roughly, we say, 300 for calculation purposes. The ICF is the reverse for sodium, very low, but very high for potassium. So again, you've got your major anions, major cations, and then of course our pH is going to correspond to the level of H ions in that fluid. So in our ACF versus our ICF, you have all sorts of uh, components that play into the regulation of these components. You have your large organic molecules. You've got ion transport. So we talked about our channels, our transporters across the cellular membrane. You've got electrocharge differences that are going to play a role in whether you generate a driving force for movement in or out of a cell. And then, of course, you've got water that's going to move to, for a biosmosis. So let's look at sodium balance. All right, so sodium, as we just spoke about, is one of the majors, the major cation in your ECF. And so, of course, your sodium is going to be a determinant of your ECF volume, plasma volume, blood volume, and blood pressure. And so basically what you want is you want to keep your sodium equal. You want your intake to be equal to your output. And that will put you in a nice sodium balance. But that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes you have positive sodium balance where you excrete less. So what you do is you're intaking more and excreting less. And if you do that, if you take in more sodium but you're not excreting it, what's going to happen to your ECF then? So you're taking in more sodium but not excreting it equally. So you're going to get a volume expansion. Your ECF is going to expand and that's going to increase blood volume and your blood pressure. On the flip side, if you excrete more than you take in, now you're losing the salts from your ECF. You get a volume contraction, decreasing your blood volume and blood pressure. 
This is how sodium gets handled in the nephron. Is it a freely filtered molecule? Yes. So if it's freely filterable, oh, 100%, no matter how much sodium is in the plasma, all of it's going to get freely filtered across the glomerular capillary. So 100% gets filtered. And how much gets reabsorbed at the proximal tubule? 67%. Perfect. How much at the thick? 25, 5% at our early distal, and then throughout our late distal into our collecting duct, we're looking at fine-tuning now, and so we're looking at a smaller amount of 3%, and then we can excrete 1%. Now, what do we remember about our thick, our early, and our late distal with regards to loads? It's load-dependent. So even if it gets presented with a little bit more than these percentages, it will try its best to reabsorb so that you'll keep the excretion rate at about 1%. So how does this happen? All right. When we're talking about blood pressure, blood volume, we're talking systemically. Okay, so if a patient is hypertensive or is hemorrhaging, there's a systemic problem. Okay? Now this systemic problem is either going to raise the blood pressure, blood volume, or decrease the blood pressure, blood volume that is now entering into the kidney. That will then affect the renal plasma flow, and the GFR. Now, what did I tell you about the kidney? Who remembers what I said about this organ? It's selfish. What it wants to do is it wants to protect itself first. So what we're going to find is that the kidney is going to employ local methods, which we talked about autoregulation, the myogenic, as well as the tubular glomerular feedback is going to employ these autoregulatory mechanisms immediately, get the GFR back to where it needs to be, then the body will take care of itself systemically. The release of hormones and the length of days and time it will take for the hormones to work and then try and fix the body. So when we look at these graphs, be mindful that we are combining both local and systemic responses. So, for instance, if we have sodium intake that goes down, my ECW goes down, my blood volume goes down. So what am I going to want to do? I want to get that salt, sodium, back up. So what happens is you've got your renin angiotensin II through your macula densa, your tubular glomerular feedback. And so what it's going to do is it's going to upregulate your renin angiotensin aldosterone, and it's going to help reabsorb that sodium. Additionally, you're going to have an increase in your sympathetic activity. You're going to constrict your afferent arterial. So what happens here now is that when you constrict your afferent arterial, you're going to slow down the flow. Okay, so here's, here's where you've got to start thinking now. Um, uh, we're putting, integrating and putting things together here now. Sympathetic activity is going to constrict your afferent arterial and it's going to slow the flow in. But we've upregulated our renin angiotensin II. So if I bring in a nice slow flow, and I am now filtering the blood through, and I've upregulated my renin angiotensin II aldosterone system, what am I hoping to do by slowing the flow down enough while upregulating my reabsorptive processes? What I want to do is I want the flow to not be too fast so that I can reabsorb as much sodium out of that fluid as possible. Okay? 
And as I'm doing this, as I'm reabsorbing, you'll see there's no AMP. AMP is my atrial natriuretic peptide. AMP is only upregulated when I have high blood pressure, high volume, and I want to excrete excess sodium and water. So would I need it if my blood volume is low? No. So when it says a decrease in AMP, it's not really a decrease in AMP, it's the absence of AMP, right? There's no need for it. And the absence of AMP allows for the efferent arterioles to be dilated. There's no AMP to constrict it, so it remains dilated. But what do we have that's going to constrict our efferent arteriole and our angiotensin 2? So the absence of AMP, there's no effect on the efferent arteriole because there's no AMP to have an effect on it, but the angiotensin 2 will constrict it. So what do we have? We've got our sympathetic constricting our afferent, letting slow flow. And we've also got constriction on the back end, backing up our flow. So what happens to my GFR? It's going to increase, but not too much, because I'm letting slow flow while backing up. So I've increased my GFR, but not dramatically that the flow in the tubule will be too fast, which will then allow enough time for my reabsorptive processes to reabsorb all of my sodium. And if I have constricted, if I'm filtering, I've increased my filtration now, and there's slow flow going into my peritubular capillaries, what also is going to happen in my peritubular capillaries in terms of oncotic pressure? Is my oncotic pressure going to increase or decrease? If I've backed up the fluid and my GFR has increased and I'm filtering more, your oncotic pressure will go up. And so the oncotic pressure in the peritubular capillaries will allow for more reabsorption to occur. So you have a combination of things happening here that will allow for the blood volume um, and sodium reabsorption to go up, to increase the blood volume, blood pressure. So when you have volume contraction, you have your sympathetic activity that will constrict your afferent, slow movement, flow in. At the same time, you've got your renin-angiotensin-2-aldosterone, this increases sodium reabsorption at our late distal collecting duct. We've got our angiotensin 2 that's going to constrict our efferent, allow backing up of our flow so that we increase our filtration to then concentrate our proteins to allow for reabsorption. And AMP is turned off, so that won't have any effect. And ADH will be upregulated to help reabsorb water, get that blood volume, blood pressure back up. So now we have a combination of both local and systemic um, functionings so that we can get this person back under control. So when we talked um, last week, we looked at the autoregulation, tubular glomerular, myogenic. That's the local responses. Kidney wants to make sure that its GFR is fine, right? And then once it is normalized, then it will work now by increasing other hormones through ADH, AMP, sympathetic activity to now try and normalize the individual. Okay, so we've got our tubular glomerular feedback, again, macula densa cells located in the early distal tubule that's going to sense the flow. Is it too much sodium chloride, too little sodium chloride? It's going to send that information back to the juxtaglomerular cells that line your arterioles, and then they will signal the release of a vasoactive substance to vasodilate, vasoconstrict, whichever arteriole is needed. And again, 
um, if your GFR is low and you want to get that GFR back up, you release your renin, which catalyzes the conversion to angiotensin II and aldosterone, activates all of that. And your angiotensin II is going to help with constriction. It's also going to help with reabsorption of sodium. We're going to get to that in a little bit. And aldosterone, as you know, is going to reabsorb your sodium in your late distal collecting duct. So your angiotensin II, what it does is it works on that sodium H exchanger. So it helps sodium, it makes it a little bit more efficient. So it will reabsorb more sodium. So if I'm reabsorbing more sodium on that sodium H exchanger in the proximal tubule, what else am I reabsorbing then? My bicarb, right? Because remember, bicarb is reabsorbed in the early by that sodium H exchanger. All right, so here's just another uh, cartoon showing you. You've got your renin released um, from the kidney that's going to act on the angiotensinogen from the liver, and it's going to be converted to angiotensin 1. ACE from the lung will convert that to angiotensin 2, which will then act on your adrenal gland on the kidney to release aldosterone. You've also got your starling forces in your paratubular capillaries. Again, when you increase your volume in your ECW, it's going to dilute your protein concentration, decreasing your reabsorption. Also, if you decrease CCW volume, then you get some um, increased concentration of your oncotic pressure stimulating reabsorption. Sympathetics, again. Now, sympathetics are very important. What they're going to do is it's going to reduce your excretion. So it wants to hold on to your sodium in three ways. And so what it's going to do is it's going to reduce. Remember, it's going to constrict the afferent arterial. It's going to reduce the flow into the arterioles. It's not going to allow for fast flow because what it wants to do is it wants to ensure that whatever's coming in is really going to get reabsorbed. Okay? Um, it's going to have a direct effect on the renal tubules, so it's going to affect the reabsorption of your sodium directly on the proximal, and it's going to also cause renin release. So not only will renin be stimulated via the juxtaglomerular cells, but also through the sympathetic activities to stimulate more release of renin to allow for more angiotensin II and aldosterone levels to increase sodium reabsorption. All right, so that was if we had low sodium intake. We had that combination. But what happens if we have high sodium intake, hypertensive, EC volume, ECF volume has expanded now? Do we want renin? No. Do we want angiotensin II and aldosterone? Do we want ADH? Do we want sympathetic activity to constrict? We don't want any of that. But what we do want is A and B. So when you have a high sodium intake, what you want to do now, okay, so when you have a high sodium intake that's high blood pressure, high blood volume, that reads as a high GFR, right, to the kidney. And it's going to signal the release of adenosine locally or engage the myogenic local response to bring the GFR back to normal. That's great. Kidney's taking care of itself, but what about the person on a whole? Now the person is trying to regulate itself by the upregulation of this hormone ANP. And so what you're going to see with increased sodium intake is a reduction in your sympathetic activity. So you won't get constriction of your afferent arterial, right? You'll get a dilation of it, which is what you want. Because now what you want is you want to get rid of excess sodium and excess water. Dilate that afferent, increase that blood flow in. Perfect. And then you've turned off all your reabsorptive processes. Even better. 
So what you've done now is you're allowing a whole lot of blood flow in, but you've turned off all the reabsorptive processes. And if you have a high blood flow, what's going to happen to my, um, my oncotic my oncotic pressure? It's going to decrease. You have a lot of flow going in straight through. And so my oncotic pressure is going to decrease, and what's that going to do to reabsorptive capabilities in my peritubular capillaries? It's going to decrease it. And the addition of my AMP, now we've got an AMP upregulation, now we're going to constrict the efferent arterial. So here now, we've got vasodilation of the afferent, letting lots of blood through. And then we've got constriction of our efferent, backing that blood up. And then we're going to increase that GFR. And then what's going to happen is that because we've turned off all of our reabsorptive processes, there's nothing in there to help reabsorb the sodium and the water, and then that gets readily excreted. So when you have volume expansion, sympathetic activity goes down, renin-angiotensin-2, aldosterone-ADH goes down. The only hormone that we're really looking at is our ANP. And so again, our AMP is secreted by the atria in response to expansion of volume. And then it's going to increase your GFR, and it's going to inhibit reabsorption along the tubule so that it can ensure that most of the sodium, that all of the sodium in excess water gets excreted. So if you have a decrease intake of sodium, what would you not like to see, essentially? Right. Good. You wouldn't see AMP because the premise is to keep sodium and water. All right. Potassium. Well, potassium is a very highly regulated solute as well. You need it for nerves, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle. And of course, 2% is in the ECF versus 98% in the ICF. And of course, we have our sodium K-ATPase that allows for these shifts across the membrane. And any small shift, you'll get a large change in your plasma concentration in the ECF. So now, so it's important now that we maintain this balance of potassium across the membranes. And this is called our internal K-balance. And there's several different factors that can play a role in how your potassium is balanced between the cell and in the blood. Okay. So what's going to cause movement of potassium out of the blood into the cell? Well, insulin is one. Insulin helps with the efficiency of your sodium K-ATPase. So that is going to help move the potassium or have potassium be secreted out of the blood into the cell. 
Same goes for your beta agonists, beta 2 agonists, and your alpha antagonists. They both do the same thing as the insulin does. Works on increasing the efficiency of that sodium K ATPase. You've got your alkalemia. Now, when we talk about that later on this week, you'll see that because your H is decreased, H is going to stay in the blood, and potassium is going to move out in exchange for H. And so we'll talk more about that into detail. So that will allow for movement of potassium and hypoosmolarity as well. Shifting of your potassium from the cell into the blood generating hyperkalemia is insulin deficiency. Again, if you have insulin deficiency and if you have a beta and beta 2 antagonist or you have an alpha agonist, all of that is going to reduce the efficiency of your sodium ATPase, so then potassium secretion won't be as great. Acidemia, again, with, when you have an acidosis, you have a lot of H ions in the blood. And so, because H is so much tightly regulated, as it's, it's a little bit more tightly regulated than your potassium, H will replace potassium on that sodium K exchanger and therefore leave your potassium behind and raising the plasma concentrations. You've got hyperosmolarity. You can get water shifts from the ICF to ECF and you get dragging of your potassium, solute drag. And that's actually how potassium gets reabsorbed in the proximal tubules via solute drag between the cells. Okay? So potassium tends to be dragged along. Cell lysis, you get breakdown cell membranes through burns, rhabdomyolysis, chemo. That's going to release your K into the blood. And exercise, again, you get opening of potassium channels, moving potassium into the blood. So all of these things can play a direct role in moving potassium between the blood and the cell. And again, just like sodium, you want to have potassium balance. You want your intake to equal your excretion. And again, not always going to happen that way. If you have positive balance, you are taking in more than you're excreting and you end up with a hyperkalemia, too much in the blood. On the flip side, you can have negative potassium balance where you're excreting more potassium than you're keeping and you end up with hypo. Kalemia. But potassium can be, um, the amounts in the blood can fluctuate based on what your diet includes. And so, of course, you can have an intake in the diet that could be very variable, and that can be um, helpful in adjusting for the potassium balance. So with potassium, again, remember when we were talking about movements throughout the nephron, it can go either way. It's filtered, and it can either be secreted, or it can be reabsorbed. And all of those three mechanisms are going to help with the balancing of the um, concentrations. So, just like sodium, it is freely filtered. And so again, you'll have 100% being filtered at the glomerulus. 67% gets reabsorbed at the proximal. In the thick ascending, it's 20% as opposed to the 25. And again, you've got some fine-tuning going on in the early distal, late, um, late distal collecting duct. So we've got, remember in our late distal and our collecting duct, we've got two different types of cells. So our principal cells is responsible for what with relation to potassium? Potassium secretion. But our alpha intercalated cell is responsible for potassium reabsorption. Good. So 
If you have a low potassium diet, your alpha intercalated cells are going to be the ones that are going to be working a little harder. But if you have a normal or high potassium diet now, um, your principal cell will be the one that's going to be working a little bit harder. So it's going to increase as a function of the amount of potassium that gets delivered. So if I have my aldosterone, remember, if I have aldosterone, that's going to be reabsorbing way more sodium and allowing for way more potassium secretion. And if I administer a K-sparing diuretic, that's going to block that and keep my potassium um, in the blood. Okay. Yes? Ah, the beta intercalated cells. We're going to see that when we talk acid-base, right? So alpha intercalated cells is important when you have acidosis and you're trying to get rid of the H's. But when you have alkalosis, the polarity shifts because you want to reabsorb your H's. And so you'll see those. But your potassium excretion, of course, is going to be determined by your diet. So do you have high, low? All of that is going to play a role in determining that. So here is our little diagram again, 100% freely filtered, except the glomerular capillaries. 67% of it gets reabsorbed in our proximal. 20% gets reabsorbed in our thick. And again, if you have a low-K diet, those alpha-intercalated cells are going to play a high, high role. If not, our principal cells will take over. And all of that is a variable secretion. You can have 4% or 150%. It depends on what your body's needing. Right? If you're in an acid-based disorder or if you're on a low dietary potassium, whatever the case may be. But in some cases, you can get secretion being so much that your excretion rate actually exceeds your filtered load. But it's roughly anywhere between 1% to 110%, usually about Which one does not have a direct effect? Good. Okay. Phosphate. Normal concentration, 2.5 to, 2 to 4.5 mg per deciliter. Now, phosphate is absolutely fabulous as a urinary buffer. It can sop up those H ions so that your urine pH doesn't get too low. So when we work acid-base this week, we're going to be talking about phosphate, particularly as a titratable acid. 85% localized in the bone, 15% RNA, DNA, DNA, RNA, and your ATP metabolite intermediates. 
And then, of course, you've got uh, inorganic form as buffers. So, unlike sodium and potassium, your phosphate is bound. So not all of it is freely filtered. Only 10% is bound, so the rest of it is able to be filtered into the glomerular capillary. So only 90% gets filtered. And of the unbound 90, 70% is reabsorbed at the proximal, in the early proximal, and 15 in the late. So throughout the entire proximal, roughly 85%. Okay. So you've got 85% in your proximal tubule, and then you notice nothing else. So I've got 15% left that's being excreted. So it's that 15% that is available to serve as a urinary buffer. It serves as a titratable acid. So you have PTH. PTH is going to inhibit the sodium phosphate co-transporters. And so PTH is going to prevent the reabsorption of phosphate at the, proximal at the early proximal tubule. And so you can see um, phosphaturia when you have PTH. And you have roughly about 15% excretion, right? Because you have that leftover 15% that doesn't get reabsorbed that will serve as titratable acid. So how does PTH work here? So PTH is your parathyroid hormone. It's going to inhibit this sodium phosphate exchange, uh, co-transport that's on the apical membrane. And so what happens is your PTH is going to bind to the receptor, which is on the basal lateral membrane of the proximal tubule. And, of course, it's going to be coupled to adenylase cyclase, and you get the upregulation of your cyclic AMP, protein kinases, phosphorylations, and all this good stuff. What that's going to do is it's going to stimulate the internalization and degradation of your transporter. So it's not available on the apical membrane. So you can't get reabsorption of your phosphates, and then your phosphate stays in the lumen, and you get phosphaturia, and then you get hypophosphatemia. Right? You can't reabsorb it into the blood. It gets excreted in the urine. Magnesium. Magnesium, it too, it's a one and a half to two mg per deciliter in normal serum. And of course, it's needed for enzymatic re re reactions. And like phosphate, it's bound. But 20% of it is bound, so only 80% is freely filterable. And of that 80% that gets through, 30% gets reabsorbed in the proximal. 60% gets reabsorbed at the thick ascending limb. Now, I'll, I'll go on and say 5% in the DCT, so 5% excretion totally. Now, 60% at the thick ascending limb. Now, we didn't really go into great detail about the lumen potential in the uh, thick ascending limb. But the thick ascending limb has a lumen potential that's positive, roughly about positive 7. So what you have is you have your triple co-transporter that's reabsorbing your sodium, your chloride, and your potassium. And then you have on your basal lateral, you've got your sodium, potassium. And then you've got also on the apical, um, a sodium H, Exchangers, so you have some H's that are being secreted out. Additionally, you've got your potassium channel. So some of that potassium that is being reabsorbed on that triple co-transporter is able to leak back out into the lumen. 
Additionally, the potassium that was secreted by the basolateral membrane tapiase can leak back out. So your luminal potential at the thick ascending is slightly positive, right? It's a plus seven, roughly. And so what happens here is, as we know, like repels like. Hmm? Say? There you go. Very good. So like repels like. So because you've got a positive lumen potential and you've got positive calcium, positive magnesium, it's not going to want to stay in that positive environment. So that positive potential difference generates a driving force to move your calcium and your magnesium across through the cells. So it's paracellular movement into the blood. Okay, so there's no hormonal influences at all. This is generated solely by the positive potential in the lumen. And so if I throw a loop diuretic now, I give you furosemide. What's that going to do now to my whole potential difference? Right. The, there you go. So, there you go. So, if you block the reabsorption of your triple cold transporter, your whole lumen potential gets disrupted. And then that, negative, that positivity is reduced because you still have your chlorides that are still hanging around there. And so that whole thing gets disruptive, and as we aptly said, then we can't get reabsorption. And so that's how the loop diuretic will affect the reabsorption of your calcium and your magnesium by disrupting that whole potential. Good. Good job. And so, in doing so, if you throw a loop diuretic into the whole mix, you can't reabsorb it, you increase its excretion, and you get hypomagnesemia. Okay? So you reduce it in the blood. So here is how we can reabsorb it. So you have your thick ascending limb, and then we've got our positive, our lumen positive potential that's allowing for your magnesium to then move paracellularly as well as your calcium, right? You move paracellularly through your paracellin transporters between the cells, okay? And then that allows for that movement to occur. You get a little bit through a channel in the distal tubule, but mostly you'll get this paracellular movement in the loop of Henle, in the, uh, in the thick ascending limb of your loop of Henle, right? Calcium. So calcium levels very regulated by PTH. Okay, 8.4 to 10.2 mg per deciliter, 99% in the bone. Now of it all, 40% is non-filterable. Now they're bound up to your calcium plasma proteins, and the remaining got 60% that's filterable. And of the 60%, 10 are are complexed. They're still filterable to phosphates and citrates. And then you've got 50% which are free. All right, so of 40% that's protein bound, 60% is filterable, and then 10 are complex to other anions, and then 50% free. So 60% freely filterable of that 60% pattern is very similar to sodium. So you get your 67% reabsorption in the proximal, 25% at the thick ascending, and then you've got 8% in the early distal, and then excretion is roughly 1%. So it's very similar 
to your sodium. So again, just like magnesium, you've got your sodium, potassium, chloride, triple cotransporter in the thick ascending limb that's again going to be generating that driving force through that positive lumen potential to allow for the reabsorption of calcium to occur. And again, if you give that loop diuretic, it disrupts that whole potential and then it doesn't allow for it to occur. And so if you have hypercalcemia, loop diuretic is also very good because you're preventing the reabsorption of calcium into the blood if you already have too much. Here, we've got our parathyroid hormone that's gonna help with the reabsorption of calcium at the distal tubule. And we've got a thiazide diuretic that also helps with it. Where's my friend Shaquille, where is he at? Oh, there you are. How does that work? Well, your thiazide diuretic, what it does well, he asked me, he's been asking me since this morning. So I said I would give him a special shout out for this answer. <laughs> so what happens is you've got this thiazide diuretic, okay? And it's going to block your reabsorption of sodium. Remember, it blocks that sodium chloride channel. And in doing so, it indirectly is going to increase that sodium calcium exchanger. If you're not reabsorbing your sodium on the apical membrane, it's gonna try and get sodium as best way it can. So it increases the activity of that sodium-calcium exchanger. Sodium comes in, three, and calcium leaves. And so what happens is inside the cell, you have a reduction in the intracellular calcium levels. Now that's gonna to start to generate a driving force for the reabsorption of calcium via the apical-specific, calcium-specific receptor, um, not receptor, channel. So it's a calcium-specific channel, which is TP, what is it, TRP, TRPV5, okay? So you have a calcium-specific channel on the apical membrane, TPRV5, that's gonna allow for calcium. So you generated now by turning off the reabsorption of sodium and chloride and indirectly upregulating that sodium-calcium exchanger, you've now generated a driving force to reabsorb the calcium in via the apical calcium-specific um, channel. Yeah? Good? All right. And so that is going to be very important too because what happens is if you increase the reabsorption of your calcium, what you do is you reduce the ability to excrete the calcium and it reduces the formation of kidney stones and the calcium kidney stone formation. So here... We've got our various portions where calcium is reabsorbed. So in the proximal tubule, you've got this calcium-sensing receptor. And what it does is it binds calcium to monitor the serum levels. Okay? And so the receptor is activated when a certain level is reached, and it sends signals to block processes. So what it's going to do is it's going to inhibit your parathyroid synthesis and secretion, so it's going to inhibit calcium reabsorption. So this is going to tell you when enough is enough, and then it will allow for the reabsorptive cap uh, capabilities to be turned off. Okay. In the distal convoluted tubule, you've got your TRPV5 or 6. That's the transient receptor potential vanilloid. Okay. And so these are selective. Again, these are the calcium selective channels that will allow for that to occur. So when you're um, blocked, your sodium chloride on the apical are blocked, and you increase your calcium, um, sodium on the basolateral, this is going to 
the reduction in your calcium inside the cell is going to allow for this channel to now reabsorb your calcium into the cell. In, you've also got your calbindin. So once your calcium gets reabsorbed, it has to be bound to calbindin to cross the cell. And then in your thick ascending limb, again, we've got that lumen potential where calcium gets reabsorbed between the cells. So PTH, how does PTH going to work? Well, PTH, we know it's going to re help reabsorb your calcium. So it's responsible for calcium reabsorption. And so you get hypocalciuria, so it keeps the calcium out of the urine. And then your PTH binds to the receptor on the basolateral membrane in, the, in your um, distal tubule, and it upregulates your adenylacyclase, cyclic AMP, opens up this TRPV calcium-specific channel, calcium binds to calbindin, and then you can get the reabsorption via that sodium-calcium exchanger or a calcium ATPase on its own. Okay. So here again, when your plasma levels are high of calcium, then PTH levels are low. Once your calcium levels start to drop, then you get the secretion of PTH to help with calcium reabsorption. And so you get your calcium reabsorption through the bone, bone reabsorption. You can get PTH secretion allowing for calcium to be reabsorbed from the kidney um, and from the intestine. All of those are going to help get that plasma calcium levels back up to snuff. So you've got your calcium levels down, PTH increases to help um, increase your calcium levels back to normal. And again, you've got your vitamin D3, calcium and PTH. Again, you've got your colocalciferol, 25-OH um, colocalciferol in the kidney. Now, you have an active and an inactive form. Okay, so you have 24, 25 dihydroxycholocalciferols, you're in inactive form. However, when your calcium levels are down and your PTH goes up, and again, what is PTH going to do to my phosphate levels in the proximal tubule? It's going to reduce it. So PTH has gone up, which is going to help reabsorb calcium, but also inhibit my phosphate reabsorption. All of that is going to trigger the release of my 1-alpha-hydroxylase enzyme in the proximal tubule to then now make my 125-dihydroxycholocalciferol. So it's going to activate my vitamin D3. All right, so which of the following solutes is 80% filterable? Good. Calcium is what? What is it? 60, and then our phosphate? 
90% filterable. Good. So these are just your summaries to show how your solutes are handled throughout your nephron. All right. So we can start. So here's, here, here you have a choice here. I can let you go for 15 minutes and start back at 4, or we can start for the next 5 minutes, 10-minute break, and then we finish early. Yeah? Second choice? I'm with that. <laughs> All right. But this one actually should go pretty quick because we talked quite a bit about it in this last hour. Um, so I'll just touch on it for the next five minutes, and then I'll let you go for break. All right. So this one, again, it's talking about controlling. It's talking about controlling blood pressure and blood volume. And we've talked about this already. We've talked about what happens when you have too much sodium or if you have too, less so too little sodium, right? Too less sodium, <laughs> right? We just talked about this. We just talked about sodium balance and how if you have too much sodium, you get a volume expansion and that increases blood volume, blood pressure, as opposed to if you excrete too much sodium, then you decrease your ECF contracting it and you decrease blood volume, blood pressure, right? And so we've got our glomerular tubular balance and we've got our tubular glomerular feedback. Those all influence our sodium water reabsorption capabilities. But in addition to those mechanisms that are intrinsic to the kidney, we also have to rely on hormones. There has to have some type of hormonal influence, all right, to keep the sodium excretion and intake as balanced as possible. And so, again, we talked about the autoregulatory mechanisms of the kidney between a blood pressure of 80 and 180 millimeters of mercury. The kidney is going to do what it has to do locally. Outside of that, then you need medical intervention. But when the body contains too much ECF, your blood volume, blood pressure is going to rise, and that's called diuresis. So you have a pressure diuresis, which has a rise in your water volume, and that's... Um, you're going to get a rise in your urinary volume, and the pressure naturesis is rise in your sodium excretion. Okay? So you want to get rid of your excess sodium, excess water. So pressure diuresis versus pressure naturesis. Okay? So let's take a look at this graph right here. You have a person who's got a blood pressure of 100, this is red. So this person has chronic uh, rise in blood pressure versus this person in blue who's got an acute rise in blood pressure, right? But we're also looking at the sodium output. Now, if you notice with the patient that's acute, right, the acute rise in the blood pressure, you have an increase in urinary sodium excretion. But with your chronic rise, you'll see you'll have an even greater rise and it's a straighter line. It's a steeper line in terms of sodium output. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the acute has a lower slope than the person that has that straight line who has a chronic? The difference is the, the time. All right, what about the time? Very good. There you go. Very good. So, again, 
Yes, you're on a roll. So when you have an acute, it's happening right now, right? Your body hasn't had time to adjust hormonally at all. But when you have a chronic situation, right, now A&P has had time to circulate and has had enough time to do its thing. So when you have an acute rise in the blood pressure, there's no sympathetics, no renin-angiotensin-2. Not that you would need it because your goal is to get rid of sodium and water. There's no ADH, no AP, nothing, no hormonal influences. But with a chronic rise in BP, now you have hormonal activity. Your AMP has been working and allowing for a greater um, excretion of sodium and volume time. And so, again, when you increase your blood pressure, you increase your renal perfusion pressure. That increases the blood flow and the pressure of the blood into your renal, your afferent arterial. And then, of course, when that happens, you now are filtering a whole lot. Your GFR has gone up. That flow through the tubule is going to be fast. That's going to signal that macula densa. Wait a second, we've got something going on too much up top. We've got too much sodium chloride. GFR is too high. And that's going to send the information back. You won't get any renin. You won't get any angiotensin II. You will get adenosine released locally to reduce the GFR. And that increased blood volume now systemically has to be dealt with, so you get the release of ANP. And that is going to decrease sodium water reabsorption in the kidney and allow for excretion of your excess sodium and excess water. All right. All right, we'll pick it up from here in 10 minutes.